the first time I gave a talk at a zoo conference and I called it the Lesser Panda. Man, I swear I got booze. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Raw Safari. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Raw Safari Podcast, your favorite digital zoo. I'm really excited to bring you a very different type of episode today. But first, those lovely reminders y'all have come to love. Hit up www.rossafari.com for all things website, and check out my merch at rossafari.redbubble.com. Also, don't forget to support the podcast at patreon.com slash rossafari. Finally, don't forget to tell people about the podcast and to make sure you're subscribed. Five-star ratings and reviews also help others find the podcast, which I really appreciate. Today, I'm taking you on a very different journey than we have been on so far. In fact, this unexpected journey came from another unplanned experience, so I want to tell y'all about all of that. When I scheduled my trip to the Chattanooga Zoo, I was planning my route and realized how close Knoxville was. I threw up a request on Instagram asking if anyone I knew had a connection at Zoo Knoxville, and less than an hour later was making plans to visit there, which led to the interview with Tiffany and her great apes found in the episode before this one. Well, when I was at Zoo Knoxville, Tiffany introduced me to one of my personal heroes, Sarah Glass. Sarah is the SSP coordinator for Red Pandas, and the panda program at Zoo Knoxville is one of the most successful in the world. Sarah was incredibly gracious, talking to me about her charges and introducing me to them, giving me a sticker, and also telling me about two other connections I should make for episodes while in the area. She sent out a quick email that evening, and two days later I found myself doing two unexpected interviews, which I thought was incredibly cool of her. One of those interviews was with Dr. Stephen Wallace, also known as Dr. Wally, who is a paleontologist and geologist, as well as a professor at East Tennessee State University, and the director of excavations at the Gray Fossil Site. Now, I know some of you are listening to this and wondering, okay, but what does this have to do with zoos and conservation? And the answer is, well, everything. It turns out that in order to fully understand how to save species, we need to understand how those species react to change over time, and paleontology really helps with that. The Gray Fossil Site in Tennessee is particularly interesting for reasons that will come out in the interview, but the reason Sarah sent me there is because they have the two most complete fossil skeletons of red pandas ever found in North America. That's right, y'all. Red pandas used to run rampant in the United States and beyond. Dr. Wallace let me see these and many other fossils, including tapirs, rodents, and one of the biggest mammal skeletons ever found, a proboscidean of unknown species. We had a great conversation about conservation, looking at animals through the lens of time, and how what we learn from the past can help us understand and protect the future of wild animals. This interview looks at conservation from an angle I've never even considered before, and I'm really excited to share it with you. Also, you'll get to hear a paleontological version of a Rossafari poop story, and you'll also get to hear me discover the meaning of something related to red pandas that I've wondered about for years now. So without further ado, here's my chat with Dr. Stephen Wallace of the Gray Fossil Site. 
and where we are. Uh, my name is Dr. Stephen Wallace. I'm a curator out here at the Gray Fossil Site and Natural History Museum. Uh, I'm also a professor in the Department of Geosciences at East Tennessee State University. And right now we're sitting in the collections out at the museum amongst lots of dead things. That is very accurate. And um, nothing that you just said has the word zoo or aquarium in it. So um, why am I here? Well, you know, if you're going to study fossils, you have to know something about the living. And so I actually have uh, good relationships with a lot of different zoos. Uh, I go to not only, you know, try to learn from the animals, learn from the keepers, learn from the, the veterinarians, but also occasionally to provide a little background, a little, you know, deep time to their knowledge of the, the animals they work with. And we're definitely going to get into that because there's some interesting perspective that you've brought to stuff just in our conversations already. Um, but let's start off by telling my listeners a little bit about this dig site and why this is so famous. Okay. Well, the Gray Fossil Site was discovered in May of 2000. It was basically a road construction project, and they ran into this really dark, organic-rich clay, and they decided to, um, you know, to investigate it, really to see, could you even put a road on this material? And while they were out here, the geotechnical engineers started realizing, well, this isn't just weird clay. It's full of bone. There's lots of bones in here. And so they started to bring in professionals, people to kind of look at it and see what it was. And early on, they thought, well, you know, there's a lot of Ice Age localities in this part of the United States, even in this part of Tennessee. And so, you know, they found a few pieces of ivory, a few other things. They thought, well, this must be Ice Age. And it's interesting, but, you know, they, they really weren't that excited yet. But it was when they discovered an alligator skull that they recognized, okay, wait a minute, this suggests warmer, not colder. Maybe this is a lot older than we think. And so that's when they finally shut down the project. They got more people involved to really look at it, and we started realizing, okay, this we're not talking tens of thousands of years. Now we're talking millions of years. And, you know, since then we've realized the site is about 5 million years old, and it's incredibly rich. It's a very large locality. It covers 4 or 5 acres, and I think our deepest cores go down over 130 feet. So we've dug less than a percent of this fossil locality, and already we have, you know, in our collections here, we have well over... Um, probably close to 20,000 catalog specimens, lots and lots of different animals, uh, plants, insects, you know, invertebrates. Uh, so it's a really neat locality. And it's not just the fact that it's a lot of cool animals compacted in one area. It's also a time frame that just isn't recorded in this part of the country. You know, most of the localities here are either much older or a lot younger. And when I say much older, the limestone around here is Cambrian to Ordovician. So now you're talking hundreds of millions of years wow. old. And so you're going to find, you know, invertebrate fossils. You're going to find brachiopods or trilobites, you know, really old stuff. Or you go into the local caves and you find Ice Age fossils. So to find something that's, you know, 5 million years old, it's, it's just kind of a neat window into what you could call sort of a gap in our record. Very cool. And you do find some really unique um, animals here. Yes, we've, we've named lots of new species, both plants and animals. And of course, you know, the, the reason you're talking to me is, is I, I got to name a, a new panda, red panda, back in 2004. And that same paper, I actually named a new Eurasian badger from our locality as well. Nice. And so, yeah, you know, those are just some of the little cool things, but there's actually quite a few new animals from the site. That's amazing. And um, so I'm sure listeners will be confused because I know I was confused, but uh, what the heck was a red panda doing in Tennessee? Uh, the fossil record of red pandas is actually 
Um, it's not perfect. You know, it's usually just fragmentary things, teeth, jaws, you know, partial skulls, maybe the occasional postcrania, you know, or limb element or something like that. But it does show us that it's covers most of the northern hemisphere. You find them in, in Europe, you find them in Asia, you know, there, there are specimens that have even been found in, you know, uh, not only China, but in Russia, places like that. Um, and then we actually have another site even here in North America, in Washington, that has a specimen. So really what you have to envision is that red pandas once covered most of the northern hemisphere, and so they were really successful in the past, and it's just coincidental that today there's only, you know, the two species that are restricted right now into a very specific area. And trust me, when you say you need to envision a North America covered in red pandas, I, I do. That's, that's <laughs> mostly what I envision. But that actually brings a really interesting point up, which is that a lot of times, um, biologists, zoologists, people who study animals now, even nerds like me that are just kind of fanboys, tend to think very much in the moment. And as a paleontologist, you bring a much larger perspective to things. Um, tell me a little bit about how maybe we need to relook at that and how we need to understand that we're not looking at the finished products of evolution, but, sure. you know, it's ongoing. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I mean, really, you know, evolution doesn't have a gold mine. You know, it's, it's just what are this, what features are advantageous right now? And, you know, that is constantly changing. And so animals are constantly evolving. And some features are going to evolve faster than others. And the now is sort of just a snapshot of that process. And so you can't ever envision an animal as being, you know, perfectly adapted to its environment. I feel like that's a misnomer that's often pitched in these, these um, wildlife shows is that it's, you know, perfectly adapted. And I, I like to think of it as more of an animal running on a treadmill. It's just keeping up. <laughs> you know, it's just doing its best to keep up. And and pandas are, are really neat because, you know, in looking at the fossils, you can see sort of this transition from a, a terrestrial carnivore that slowly moved into the trees and then started, you know, the selective pressures change. And so it starts evolving features that are good for the trees. And, of course, now there's different things to eat. So it starts, you know, selecting teeth that are that are allowed to process more vegetation. But, you know, the the internal workings, it's, a, it's an organs, they, they take time. And so I feel like, um, you know, when you talk about speciation and you look at modern animals, you always have to realize that, you know, you're just seeing a snapshot of the now. There's often a long history of the animal and, you know, deciding how much has it changed? Has it changed enough to be a new species? That's hard. That's really hard to, to, to come up with a definitive answer for it. And I think I told you earlier, you know, I, I like to, to envision it as, um, you know, it, we're, we're arbitrarily saying this is species one, this is species two, but we should be asking the animals and we really can't do that <laughs> because, you know, it's, it's those selective pressures, you know, when, when one animal, when a female animal and a male animal see each other, are they recognizing each other as the same species? Are they, do they have the same reprodu reproductive cycles? You know, those are easy, somewhat easy to answer now, but they're still not perfect. But in the fossil record, it's almost impossible. And so we have to look for morphological features. What, what feature distinguishes this population from that population. So it's, it's kind of a fun process for me because I feel like as a paleontologist, I really have to mix, you know, sort of modern biology and modern genetics with the fossils that, that I get, which is never the full picture. Right, right. You know, it's just a, it's a fragment. And it's, it's funny because, again, you know, in the modern, we think we have the full picture, but we really don't. And, you know, now, now put yourself in my shoes where I have fragments. <laughs> so... 
That's really interesting. And yeah, that's um, something that has come up even just on this podcast multiple times is how weird pandas are because they are, uh, they have, you know, they're carnivores and yeah. they, they have the digestive tract of carnivores, but they eat mostly leaves, which is really weird unless you consider the fact that they're slowly changing. And, mm-hmm. and like you said, organs, you know, take a while to change. So they, um, you know, if we could see into the future and sure. if we don't make them go extinct, please, everyone, then yeah. um, we might find you might eventually see those changes and you know and even along those same lines that yeah maybe given another million years their their internal mechanisms would change their digestive system would you know would adapt to to the the food that they're eating but that's assuming that their environment doesn't change forcing their body in another direction you know you just there's again there's no end goal in mind and so all we ever get whether you're looking at the now or even whether you're looking at a fossil locality it's a snapshot of where evolution happened to be at that moment (laughs) And it's, it's interesting, you know, because you look at the panda that we have at Gray, and it has a lot of the climbing characteristics that are similar to a modern red panda, but its proportions are different. Clearly, it was spending more time on the ground than a living red panda. And it's interesting because even on, among its own members of the, its lineage, it looks like ours may have come down out of the trees more often than even some of the older versions, uh, you know, members of uh, the red panda family. And you look at the teeth, and it's reflected a little bit in the diet, too, because I think I told you when I was showing you the skull that, you know, our red panda has, you know, sharp premolars, it has big canines, big incisors, and it still has functional carnasials, which are the blades that, that you know, carnivorans use for chewing. And um, so it clearly ate a, a fair percentage of meat. So I, I kind of, I always like to giggle and say that it basically was doing the raccoon thing before raccoons. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's. That's awesome. Cool. So tell me a little bit more about the the red panda skeletons that you have here. Uh, What's really cool about ours is that, you know, like I said earlier, uh, uh, pandas, the fossil record of red pandas is often just scanty little material, a tooth here, a jaw there, something like that. And what really makes ours neat, and, and, you know, I kind of took advantage of the opportunity, is I, you know, I pulled out that drawer and I said, you know, here you're looking at the most complete fossil red panda in the world because our female is about 98% complete. And the reason I say females, we did some statistical analyses and were able to show that we actually have a sexually dimorphic species where the, we have females that are small and males that are big. And, and our first big complete skeleton was a, a female. And um, anyway, she's about 98% complete. And then I said, would well, you want to see the second most complete skeleton in the world? And of course, I pull out the drawer below and it's our male and he's about 75% complete. And those are our two primary skeletons right now. But they are, like I said, I mean, very, very complete skeletons, very good shape. Um, it's neat because the female, even though she's smaller and more gracile, she's actually an old individual. She has very worn teeth. The male, even though he's more massive and very robust, has very unworn teeth. And so he's even, he's young. And so I, I, you know, like I've said with some of the other animals, I can't wait till we find more of these because I feel like, you know, we're going to find bigger males. We're going to find even, and we're even probably going to find bigger females that just have the more gracile body shape as we find more individuals. And I think right now our minimum number of individuals, which we calculate based on duplicating elements, you know, do you have, you know, four, you know, if you think of your femur, your upper uh, thigh bone, if you have four lefts and three, um, three rights or something, you would say, okay, well, there's at least four individuals. Well, for our panda, I think we're sitting at about eight right now, eight That's individuals. Amazing. Cool. And how do these pandas compare size-wise to modern-day pandas? 
Well, our, our female is about twice the size of a living red panda, but the male is about three times the size, which is really cool. And when I say three times, I mean, I'm just talking mass, but you're basically talking about an animal that's the size of a wolverine. And what's really cool, and this is something I didn't mention earlier, is that, you know, living red pandas have semi-retractable recurved claws mm -hmm. that are huge. I mean, I swear they look like they're four times bigger than they should be for the size of the animal. And they use it for climbing, and they can actually climb head first down a tree, right. which is really bizarre when you see it for the first time. You're like, what is wrong with this? And then you realize that you know they're just like, like Velcro hands walking down down a surface. I mean, a squirrel rotates its wrist to do that, whereas a red panda just latches on. Anyway, our fossils have those same giant claws. Oh wow! So, but of course they're proportionally bigger. And so now you think of an animal that's the size of a wolverine, but it has cat-like claws. I think this would have been a formidable little beast. I don't think I would have wanted to run into one of these things. And it's kind of neat because you think of. Um, you know, I, I make it sound like ours is so huge, but within the lineage, um, ours is even small compared to most fossil red pandas. Wow. I mean, when I've looked at isolated teeth from Europe and from Asia, they're bigger than our teeth. So, you know, even though we say ours is so much bigger than the living, most of the fossils are bigger than the living. The living is a really tiny end member of this whole lineage. Fascinating. Tell me a little bit about your thoughts on uh, polar bears and black bears that we were discussing earlier. Oh, sure. When we were talking about, you know, sort of genetic evolution, you know, one of the things you always have to think about is how, how long have two populations or two groups been split? And, you know, polar bears uh, genetically are very similar to brown bears uh, or, you know, grizzly bears. I mean, it's the same species. But anyway, um, they're very similar. But yes, they, you know, you look at them and they physically are different. They do have skeletal differences that are actually pretty extreme. But they can hybridize, and really, geologically, when we look at it, we see um, that it was probably a population of brown bears that during the Ice Age, during the Pleistocene, was split off, um, and then was, select, or, you know, was basically subjected to a whole new series of selective pressures that led to the white coloration, the different body shape, you know, the, the different hunting styles, the whole works. But it was probably only you know, in the last few hundred thousand years so the genetics hasn't had time to really completely diverge. And so even today, they can still hybridize. They don't do it very commonly because, you know, they recognize each other as different species. Um, and they're typically separated by some distance, you know, normally. But with climate change and with the way, you know, the, the pack ice is disappearing, they're going to be forced to move south. And as they start to integrate with the brown bears, I suspect they will start to hybridize. And, you know, we always talk about saving the polar bear I don't think we'll really lose it in the sense of genetic-wise because the genes will be in the brown bear population. But as a species, yeah, I think we will lose polar bears because they'll simply breed you know, into the, the brown bear stock and disappear. Um, I'd like to think that maybe, you know, maybe there'll be some subpopulations that hold on, but it's, it's just it's really hard to say. You know, if they get forced down here, I, I think that they will start to hybridize. But if you want a smaller scale version of how, you know, if you, let's backtrack a second and say, you know, polar bears seem really extreme, but, you know, do we have maybe a, another example that hasn't split as far? Think of a Kodiak bear. You know, a Kodiak bear right now is just restricted on an island and has a different food source. And so they're very large, but they haven't really split off into their own species yet. So think of, you know, same thing, give them a few more million years. Maybe if the island were further away, they, they might actually split off into a species. And so that's kind of what polar bears did. It, but it was ice, you know, it was the ice sheets that separated them from the rest of the brown bear stock and allowed them to really change. But yeah, even today they do hybridize. 
I feel like you see news articles all the time of them finding these hybrids that have white patches on them and right, brown patches yeah. on them and really kind of an interesting bear. But it does make you, you always have to think about that sort of deep time component. That's how long ago was that split? But also, how are the animals interacting with each other? Because if they recognize each other as different species, then they probably are functionally different species. However, if you have two populations that come together and they just freely interbreed, then I feel like I'm not sure that that's, you know, if we want to call them different species because of some genetic marker, you always have to question the validity of that because clearly nature's not recognizing it. (laughs) Right. No, definitely. And that's one of the interesting things about taxonomy in general is it's humans trying to put nature into categories. We love to do that. We do love to do that. Uh, But it's, um, there are problems with that, I think. And, and like you said, nature doesn't recognize it. Sure. And, you know, the, the example that I gave you earlier, you know, I said that to me, I tell my students this all the time, that, that anything above the species level is completely arbitrary. Because, you know, if you say, well, this belongs in, in the genus Volpes, which is, you know, the red fox, or the genus Canis, which is kind of a catch-all for a lot of canids, the fox doesn't know what that means. You know, I mean, the, 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 genetically, the... the People might say, oh, I see a difference, and it's different enough that we should call it a new genus. But we are making that decision. Nature doesn't understand. And and so really anything above the species, I feel like, is completely arbitrary. Now, I know I have a lot of taxonomists that are going to send me hate mail because I said that. (laughs) But I I say it all the time because I just feel like it is. It's arbitrary. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying that it it is we are deciding it. So maybe arbitrary is not the, the best choice of words. It's just subjective. That's you know, right. no, that makes sense. I mean, because yeah. you know, we have to justify why we're calling it a new genus or family or whatever, and that's why, to me, I giggle when I see two two paleontologists fighting over whether something is a family or a subfamily, and they're fighting and getting all mad. And I just feel like, are you kidding me? <laughs> really? Very cool. So, um, you guys have found an absolute boatload of tapirs here, mm-hmm. and um, again. Tapir is not something you think about as the Tennessee tapir, although that would be a great football team. I know. I, I've tried. <laughs> I've tried to pitch it. You know. I mean, I mean, here we are, ETSU. We're the Buccaneers, and how close are we to any big body of water? You know. So, uh, I, I'd love to be the, you know, the screaming tapers or something funny <laughs> like that. I mean, we could, we could do a great mascot. You know. I mean, it'd so be awesome. So but, tell me a little bit about the tapirs and what they were doing up here. Were they on vacation? Going well, to sure. Hollywood? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, it, that'd be even funnier visual is to see a taper <laughs> riding a roller coaster. Um, but, well, you know, and, and if we're going to go down that road, uh, we always giggle here. We, we love to come up with these visuals of what the animals were doing. And, you know, this big elephant we're working on with these giant tusks. You know, the joke is that the the elephant is, there's so many tapers that the elephant is just skewering tapers like shish kebabs, and that's <laughs> that's what it eats. Um, obviously not, but it's still funny. But but anyway, yeah, tapers, you know, we often think of them as Central America, South America, you know, there's the species in Asia. But really, tapers were once spread throughout most of the northern hemisphere, North America, Europe, and Asia. And they've only recently gotten to South America. And really, South America for a long time was sort of this island continent, kind of like Australia is today, um, right after the breakup of Pangaea. And it took a long time for a new connection to form between it and North America. And when the Isthmus did actually, the Isthmus of Panama did connect about 3 million years ago, plus or minus a few million years, we know that the land bridge became very solid because we do have animals that make it up to North America from South America before then, but it's a trickle. 
But about 3 million years ago, it really takes off. And a lot of animals come north, a lot of animals go south, and oddly enough, tapirs go south. And tapirs go extinct in North America, um, but they survive in Central America and South America. But if you look at the fossil record, the fossil record in North America is extensive. There's tapirs all over the place. So even in the local caves around here, we find tapirs. The Great Fossil Site has tapirs. But you go to South America, and they don't have a very good fossil record of tapirs because they're recent. They got down there recently. So, I mean, they're, they're a fun little animal, and I just, I, I love tapirs. I mean, Nashville actually has a, a population of, of Baird's uh, tapirs. I say population, you know, they've got a, they had a breeding pair there, and they've had several individuals born there, and, and I, I love to visit because they're the most awesome animals. I mean, I love their little proboscis, and, and you know, any opportunity I get to interact with them, I take advantage of it. <laughs> That's so cool. Um, okay, so I'm going to ask you a, a uh, devil's advocate kind of question, sure. um, which is, so I hear what you're saying about how we're, you know, evolution is a constant race, if you will, and um, uh, things are constantly changing, and we have this, this fossil record that shows that. Um, should we just give up on conservation? I, I, should we just accept that things are changing? No, I think that there's a difference between what's natural and what is anthropogenic. And, you know, when you think about um, how people have, you know, human beings have destroyed environments and have, um, you know, changed the climate and things like that, we are doing it at a rate that is much different than what would happen in nature. We're doing it so much faster, so many orders of magnitude faster. And, you know, animals, their, their ability to evolve, to change compared to the environment is dictated by how fast they can reproduce. And, you know, something like a rodent, which cranks out many generations in a single year, can evolve very fast. But most animals aren't, you know, most animals aren't like that. I, was got, I almost said most animals aren't a rodent, but that's actually n not a good statement because if you, if you take into account bats and rodents, you literally have half of all mammals. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, but anyway, because, I mean, rodents are the most diverse group. And, and that's why they're still doing pretty well. You know, it's, it's, it, when you talk about endangered animals, they're usually not... Um, I mean, rodents often do pretty well. And that's not to say there aren't endangered rodents. But anyway, back to the original, I'm getting sidetracked, back to the original <laughs> comment here was just that most animals, you know, are, cannot evolve quickly enough. And, and then even the rodents themselves, they're, they're still limited. I mean, you can only have so much change per generation. And if the climate is changing too fast, if the environment is radically changed, if you go from a forested ecosystem that is then deforested for cattle, you know, a rodent can't evolve in a single generation. You know, it doesn't work that way. Right, right. I mean, you need time for changes to occur. So, the, the sh you know, that was a long answer, but the short answer is, yes, we should still try to conserve things because, I mean, you know, we are doing it so much faster than what is normal. And I know it's hard to say sometimes what normal is, but, you know, I'm a, I'm a geologist. I've, I've seen how, you know, the earth changes. And when we talk about things happening rapidly, we're talking about, as a geologist, we're talking about thousands or maybe millions of years, and we call that rapid, <laughs> not decades. <laughs> right. That's really interesting, but I'm, I'm glad to hear that because uh, this podcast mainly exists to raise awareness of conservation, sure. and I thought I was going to have to shut it down for a minute, but uh, <laughs> glad we don't have to do that. So that's excellent. Tell me about the insanely large animal that you guys are working on right now. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, I'll, I'll kind of give you the the quick version of, of what I'd mentioned earlier, that um, when you talk about uh, a proboscidean, a proboscidean is basically elephants and all their closest relatives. And true elephants is kind of just a branch within a bigger tree. 
And but we call that whole tree proboscideans. And so this thing is really a proboscidean. It's not really a true elephant. But if you saw it, you would say it's an elephant. If you saw it alive, you'd say that's just a weird looking elephant. But it is insanely weird looking elephant. Um, <laughs> basically, we're, we're, we've pulled out almost the entire skeleton. We're missing a kneecap. We're missing a few vertebrae, a few ribs here or there. But it's pretty much the whole skeleton. And most of it's going together pretty well. And it is just so much bigger than we expected. And, you know, to give you a, a perspective, we have, you know, for sake of argument, the femur, which is your upper leg bone, and we've compared it to a Colombian mammoth. And it's just as long as a mammoth, but the proximal and distal end, which is the ends of the bones, are much more massive. So you're looking at an animal that's as tall as like a mammoth, a Colombian mammoth, but it's built like a rhino. You know, it's massive. It's built like a, a mastodon in a sense. And so it's this huge, massive animal. And for a while, we were thinking, you know, we, had, we were trying to do mass estimates, and we were coming up with, you know, close to 20 tons for this animal. And we've, you know, we've, we've backed off of that a little bit because, you know, it's hard to calculate the mass of an animal that there's really no modern comparison because sure. you can't compare it to an elephant. It's not built like an elephant. It's just related to one. And, you know, we're still probably looking at the top 10, you know, largest mammals ever. It's probably in the top 10 still. And what's really neat is we're realizing as we've been digging around this one skeleton, is that, you know, prior to finding this one skeleton, we had almost nothing of this animal. We just had bits and pieces. But when we hit this one skeleton, there's other individuals around it. And what we're realizing is that we have some that are bigger still than this one. So even though we come up with this mass estimate, let's say we decide, okay, this is 12 tons or something, which is absurd when you think about it, because how much right. bigger than an African elephant that really is. You know, a six-ton or eight-ton African bull is pretty crazy. So, you know, even if we say ours is only like 11 or 12 tons, it's not the biggest one we have out there. And so we may still have that 15 or 20 ton animal out there, which is just crazy. And when you look at the records for the biggest mammals that have ever been described, a lot of them are proboscideans and they are single skeletons. And so, you know, if you think about it, when, as we dig more out here, the odds are statistically, it's unlikely that the first one we found is the biggest one we're ever going to find. We're going to find bigger ones. And so I think we'll start competing with some of those isolated <laughs> proboscideans out there, which would be awesome. And, Gray is just so weird because we have, you know, some things like that that are big. But then, like, when I was talking about the tapers a second ago, I should have pointed out our taper is a dwarf taper. You know, it's tiny. I mean, it's like 250 pounds, which is the size of, like, the Woolly Mountain taper, uh, Taperus Pinchakwe. Um, so, you know, a real tiny little taper. I mean, it'd be kind of cuddly. <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely, definitely cuddle that tapir. That is, that's so cool. Um so, oh, talk about, uh, before we move on, um, talk about the tusks. Oh, the tusks are really neat. I guess I should have mentioned that. The reason I would say you, you'd look at this animal when it was alive, our big proboscidean, and you'd say, well, you know, it looks like an elephant, but it looks weird. And the first thing that you would notice is that its lower jaws stick way out from the mouth, and they kind of project downward. And a lot of that is actually bone. There's, there's the, the place where you're too... Um, halves of your, your jaws come together, we call it the symphysis, extends really far down. But then even projecting from that are two tusks. And so this animal actually is a four-tusk, you know, proboscidean. It has two upper tusks that are probably between 10 and 12 feet long. And then it has this projection of the jaw with the lower tusks sticking out. And they are, they're about a foot and a half long. You saw them. Yeah. And I mean, and they're, they're, they're round, which is weird. There are other related proboscideans that have lower tusks like that, but they're usually flat. We call them shovel tuskers, and they're usually flat. So this one having these round ones um, is kind of weird. It, it, again, I think I mentioned before, it seems to be some sort of weird intermediate animal, which is really cool. I mean, we, 
we love finding stuff like that because you know it's boring if it's all the same right of course yeah and that's just that's just further proof of what we were talking about earlier that um you know time marches on and um things change and what we're seeing right now is just one step on the other it's just a snapshot yeah which is so cool well and you know i i've i used to watch these a lot when i was younger i haven't watched them as much recently but um i know they're still out there i just I don't know, my, my tastes have changed, I guess. But but anyway, I've seen these programs where they'll talk about projecting animals into the future. Right, right. What, what is this animal going to look like in a million years? What is that animal going to look like in a million years? And they're fun. I mean, they're a fun exercise. They're definitely entertaining. There's just, there's, but there's no way you could know. Right. right. You know, they, they, can, they can say this is our estimate or this is our, our guess, but there's really no way to know because you can't predict what the climate's for sure going to do or, you know, how the continents are moving around and we can project those to us with some certainty into the future, but only to a point, you know? Right. right. So, I mean, it, I, I think those would be, those would actually be a lot of fun. That's very cool. And that actually brings up another interesting topic. Um, when you're talking about paleontology, what most people tend to think of as dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. And, um, I had heard, and I know that it is, you know, a fairly common belief that, um, because we only have the bones, of the dinosaurs that the drawings and artistic uh, renderings that we have of dinosaurs are probably completely wrong because we have no way to know what their musculature was like. And if they had any weird protuberances or anything weird like that. Um, but you disagree with that. And so could you explain why that is? Yeah, I, I think really it depends on what animal you're talking about. Um, you know, there are some animals that we just have no modern comparison. And so we have no starting point, but there are other animals where we have good comparisons. I mean, even dinosaurs for sake of argument, you know, we do have birds to look at. They do have very similar skeletal structures. And so you can dissect it and you can see how all the muscles actually um, fit together, how they, how they attach to the bone, the kind of scars that they leave. And, you know, there are, based on dissections of lots of different types of vertebrates, everything from, you know, reptiles to fish to, you know, amphibians and, and mammals, you know, we, we can look at how the muscles leave scars on the bones and then translate that. And so we can actually do a pretty good job of muscling out an animal. Now, what color the skin was, what color the fur was, how much was there, that gets problematic. But again, sometimes you have lucky things that help you out. And there's a handful, just for example, there's a handful of dinosaurs out there where um, they've actually found um, a carbon film of the body. You know, the the skeleton's laid out, and there's a carbon film with a soft tissue. But when they, they actually look at that carbon film in detail, they get remnants of the pigment. And so they can start making interpretations of color. They can start making interpretations of pattern. And there's a few dinosaurs that have been described recently where they've been able to figure out the camouflage pattern based on the distribution of the pigments. And, you know, in, so, in some respects, sure, sometimes we don't know if, with high level of certainty, but based on, you know, these proxies, we can get pretty close. But, but I, will, I will give you that, that we're never going to be 100% certain. Right, right. But nothing in science is 100%. And when you talk about gray, what makes gray neat for me, I know I'm getting off topic a little bit here, but is that it's young enough that we have much better proxies. You know, if I'm working on a cat, you know, a fossil cat at gray, well, you know, there are living cats. And so we can look at their musculature and their, their, their skeletal structure and the relationships between the two and then, you know, make that, that step and have a lot more confidence in it. And, and that's what I like about gray is that everything out here, it's so young, which is funny to say it's young when it's 5 million years old, <laughs> but everything out here is young enough that, you know, you look at it and you go, that's a taper, that's a rhino, that, that's an alligator, that's a, 
you know, I mean, you can recognize these things. And so you feel much more comfortable. But color is always a, a question. And even, you know, I, I was wondering if this is where you were going with this, but I'll just beat you to the punch is, do we know that our red panda was red? <laughs> and, and my answer is kind of entertaining because I always say, well, no, I have no idea. It could have been purple for all I know. But I call it a fossil red panda because the first time I gave a talk at a zoo conference and I called it the lesser panda, man, I swear I got booze. Yep. And yep. so it was like, okay, 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 I hear your point. And so I just say, <laughs> I just say red panda and it makes everybody happy. But, um, but there's really, we don't know. We don't know what color our panda was. Right. And I'm hoping that, you know, at some point we may get lucky. You know, we, I don't see why we couldn't find fossil hair out here. We haven't found any yet. We do find a lot of other organics out here. Occasionally, we find well-preserved plant material. But a lot of that plant material has been so heavily compressed that a lot of the volatiles have been dr driven off, and it's mostly carbon. And if that's the case, then, you know, if you have, under those conditions, you're not going to preserve hair. Right. So we'll keep looking, and maybe we'll get lucky, but so far, we haven't had any. So I can't, all I can say is that it probably had some sort of a, a pattern to it because that's very common among carnivorans to have some sort of camouflage and based on the lifestyle of, of you know, red pandas, you know, they have sort of a camouflage. Um, raccoons who have a similar lifestyle have a similar camouflage. Right. And so, you know, I could assume that our fossil panda probably had something similar too. Very cool. So, um... Why does any of this matter? And especially why does this matter to um, a bunch of zoo nerds who are listening to this? Well, really, if you're going to try to save living animals, you really need to understand how fossil animals reacted to past climatic changes. And, you know, you think about our site in particular, um, most of North America at the time of our fossil site had grasslands spreading. And so there were there were major turnovers going over in the plants and animals as they shifted from a forested ecosystem to a grassland ecosystem. And so that's a big stress on the environment. Lots of extinctions, lots of new species that showed up. Gray was a holdover, basically. It was a heavily forested locality, and it was almost like a refugium. And so the way to think about it is if we can understand how these animals, you know, used that refugium in a sense to their advantage, if we can understand how other plants and animals from other sites reacted to those environmental changes, we can then apply that to the plants and animals today that we're trying to save and the environmental changes that are happening today. So it's really like a, it's our best comparison. I mean, I realized that I said earlier that obviously changes are happening faster now, but you still have to have a baseline. No, right. How did animals react in the past to environmental changes? And that's the only thing you can use to, to try to figure out how they're going to predict or how they're going to react in the future. Makes sense. No, that's very cool. And I'm curious, do... Um do zoos or well, anyone studying conservation ever come to you to discuss this kind of thing? Yeah, we have. Um, we actually have uh, zoo zookeepers. Um, you know, the veterinarians, uh, different people you know associated with the zoos come here for tours, and we talk about things like this. I've gone and give given talks at zoos and at even zoo conventions. And then on top of that, we're also trying to publish too. And in fact, I've got a paper in the works right now. Um, uh, with uh, my fiance and I are actually working on a paper where she's doing niche modeling of um, of red pandas, essentially, and looking at uh, their their interactions with the environment. And then, can we actually make some predictions based on you know the model that we create? Can you actually project that into the future based on climate change and see uh, to better you know to if you, if you think about it, 
to, to choose where do you want to have preserves? Where's the best place to have a preserve? Where's oh, wow. the best place to have a zoo? Where's the best place to have a, because, you know, we are seeing weird trends that some zoos do better than others. Mm-hmm. And sure, there, there's a lot that can be said about your methodology and about your, your treatment of the animals and about your facilities. But there's also zoos that seem to be identical when it comes to those things, but some are more successful than others. And we, you know, you wonder, is it, is it where they're located? You know, I mean, right. and, and that could be very possible because at the same time, you also don't want to waste the time preserving part of a range if they're moving out of it. Right. Makes you know, sense. If, yeah. if climate change is driving them out of an area where they're found today, you want to know where they're going to be 50 years from now. Right. Because, I mean, again, you might preserve some huge area and then the climate change shoves them out of it and then you've preserved <laughs> nothing. So... And again, I'm not saying that we're going to be 100% correct in our, in our models and our predictions, but it at least provides extra data for those decision-making processes. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And it's, it's interesting that you said that because um, uh, Sarah Glass, who, who introduced us and set all of this up, I was talking to her and I just I asked her, why are you so good at breeding red pandas? Because mm-hmm. she and her zoo are... Are, are the gold standard. Yeah, in, they are, I mean, they States. are the top they, breeders in the yeah, world. They kill it, and it's it's amazing. Um, and I expected a little bit of a cocky answer, and, you know, well, I know so much. And actually what she said really blew my mind. She said, there's a lot that goes into it, and there's a lot of knowledge and a lot of shared everything. But also, we're on the same, and I always forget if it's longitude or latitude. I always forget which one it is, but longitude or latitude. Um as where the pandas live, and we are in mountains. She said, if you look at the Smoky Mountains mm-hmm. and compare them to the, the forests over in Nepal, other than the lack of bamboo, it's actually very, very similar. similar. Yeah. And she was like, and I think that is a big part of, part of it. And I was like, oh. Okay. Well, what's really interesting is that she was probably trying um, – she was probably also trying not to steal any of our thunder because the um, the paper that I'm talking about, one of the projections that we make is into the United States, you know, into North America, and it does show Knoxville sitting in a very ideal habitat. <laughs> Interesting. And, and we we presented that to them. We actually presented it to all the keepers there at Knoxville and showed them, you know, look, this basically this could be one of the reasons why you're doing so well is because we have. Um, you know, because it, it projects, like she said, it clearly this is very similar to what they live in today. And so right. it shouldn't be that surprising. So, of course, you know, then the, the natural follow-up is, well, we got to release them, right? <laughs> Sorry, I, I had to sneak that in. Because they're going to make it. They'll be fine. Um, but, but, you know, what, I mean, I guess, um, you know, one of the other things that I, I should at least mention, though, is that, you know, anytime you project it, though, into another continent or something, there's obviously variables that you cannot take into consideration. Sure, sure. And so I'm sure that their expertise has still has a lot to do with it. But it is neat to think that, yeah, this was a, a, an environment that, you know, or this is an environment that they do well in. And maybe to take a few steps back of our earlier conversation, it looks like in the past, this sort of ideal environment was much more widespread. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, the plant record shows, plant fossil record shows that there was a nice sort of um, circumboreal, if you want to think about it, forest that once covered a lot of the northern hemisphere that had a lot of these ideal conditions, and that's where the fossil pandas survived. And so as, as um, that shrunk and as you know, the, the global climate changed, um, basically what you were left with was this relic population in China, and then of course... You know, they eventually went extinct here, but we had the holdovers here in gray. You know, right. we had the pandas that were still here, but eventually they went extinct. But what's neat is if you, when you, when Sarah mentioned that, you know, 
this part of the Appalachians is so similar to, you know, uh, parts of their, their current range, Red Panda's current range, is if you actually look at the plants in eastern North America, they actually share more similarities with East Asia than they do with Western North America. Oh, wow. Because they're remnants of that former forest. And so sure. a lot of times if you're looking at an oak species or a chestnut species and you're looking for the next closest relative in Eastern North America, that is, if you're in Eastern North America, it's not out West like you'd think, it's in China. Wow. And if, if you want a fun, you know, because since we're in this mode, if you want a fun animal example, uh, the living alligator, you know, the genus alligator, there's one other species and it lives in China. That is true. That is true. And alligators were once much more widespread. Wow. The genus was found, you know, in much wider areas. And so those are the two remnants that are left. This is all incredibly fascinating to me. Um, I, I love the big picture look at all of this and the snapshot idea. And it's, it's really changing my perspective on so much of the stuff that I take for granted about sure. animals now. So and, that's and, really cool. It's really hard to take it all into account. And it's why, you know... All I can do is, is do the best I can with what I have. But obviously, if I can look into more sources of data, it helps. Right. And, you know, wh wh I think what I feel like I'm contributing to the conservation thing is at least I can bring in that deep time component yeah. to give people a little more history. Um, you know, I, again, I, I can't give them everything. I mean, and we, no one can know everything. Mm -hmm. But every little bit, if I can help them by just giving them that little extra piece of knowledge, then I feel like I've accomplished something. Absolutely. That's incredible. So, um Clearly, to do something like this and to to compare, uh, like you were saying, the older to the current, you need to get your hands on um, some modern skeletons and to, to take sure. care of that. How do you go about that? Well, there's actually um, a couple little things. If, if you don't mind, I'll take a, the opportunity to, to, to pitch a little story, a little a little um, analogy first, and that is, um, you know, I always have people that will ask me. Well, how do you know this is from this animal or that animal? And, you know, how do you know this little bone scrap goes to a panda or goes to a... And, you know, I always have to remind them that it's only if it's the right scrap. Because, you know, if you, for every bone that I find and say, oh, this is a panda calcaneus, there's a thousand scraps of bone that will always say bone scrap. Because <laughs> we just don't know. You have to have the right characters. And, the, again, the analogy that I like to use is that you, we all know somebody that can go into a, a junkyard... And they pick up a carburetor and they say, this is from a 1974 Ford Mustang. And your first question should be, well, how do you even know that's a carburetor? Right. How do you know it's a Ford? How do you know it's a Mustang? And, you know, they'll rattle off all these characters. Well, how did they learn those characters? They learned them because they've looked at a lot of cars and they've looked, worked with a lot of car parts. Mm -hmm. And they take it second nature. You know, you ask them, well, how do you know that's a carburetor? And they'll look at you and say, because it's a carburetor. You know, because <laughs> they, they just that's what it is. And it's the same with bones, is that it takes us time to learn all those characters. And the only way we can do it is with modern skeletons. And so we go out, we collect modern skeletons. And we have a huge skeletal collection here. When I started uh, back in 2001, we had nothing. And we have been building ever since. And we probably have over, over 15,000 skeletons of modern animals from all over the world um, that we've put together. And it's been through a variety of sources, everything from... The um, uh, TWRA, which is the Tennessee Wildlife Resource Agency, calling us, and we got a, a bear that was hit, to, you know, people getting their fishing license and catching a bunch of fish, to, you know, zoos occasionally providing us with specimens. And it's, it's always a bit of a, an adventure to go get these things. 
Um, and then, of course, you have to process them down to the skeleton, which is a whole nother story. But, but again, that's how we learn the characters. And, you know, the story that I told you earlier that was, for me, very fun was that, you know, I, um, I got a call from Buffalo, New York, and they, they know this story, so they, they won't harass me for sure, saying sure. it. But they, they had a, a, a rhino die, and we wanted to go get it. And so we drove all the way up to Buffalo, New York, and they had done a necropsy on the skeleton or on the individual and um, I won't say his name because I mean we do know I do know his name I do know the the rhino's name oh, I, just wanna, I, I just yeah, want I just want I want to be polite I don't yeah. want to say it because yep, yep. um, we you know we we know they were someone's you know family at one yeah, time no, so we we were very respectful of that we keep it documented with the, the individual but anyway um, they had already done an necropsy and, and they had they had stored it in a cooler they didn't have a freezer big enough and it'd been up there for a while and so it gotten pretty ripe and uh, you know I mean we 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 don't we we're used to this you know everyone's scale of what smells bad and what doesn't is different. Ours is, ours is absurd because, you know, we've smelled some pretty bad things. But anyway, this rhino was pretty ripe, and so we loaded it to the back of my truck, and we tied it all down, got tarps over it, and, get, you know, got it all covered nice, and it still smelled horrible. And, and we get in the vehicles, and we all smell horrible, and one of the grad students is like, you know, Niagara Falls is right down the road. We've got to go to Niagara. We can't drive all this way and not go to Niagara. And so I thought, well, okay, fine, why not? We're here. And so we drove to, to Niagara Falls and, you know, with a dead rhino in the back of my truck. And, and, I mean, I remember pulling in and seeing the sign, like I told you, that said, you know, all suspicious packages are subject to search. And I thought, man, I'm going to jail. <laughs> and, but it, no, nobody said anything. They let us drive in and, you know, we parked. And, and I, I mean, really what I thought was going to happen because of the smell is I thought for sure we'd come back and there'd be seagulls all over my car that's, right, or right. my truck. That's what I thought would happen. But instead, we come back, and there's no cars anywhere near us. There's this huge buffer <laughs> because probably every new car that pulled in, they'd pull next to us, and they'd get out, and they'd go, oh, my God, you know, and they move their car. And so there was this buffer. <laughs> but we did get it home, and we did get it processed, and it's in our collection. And we use it every year. When I, you know, when I teach vertebrate paleontology, I'll pull out the different limb elements. And, and you know, it's, it's one thing to try to have a cast or to show students pictures, but to be able to pull out real material. And, you know, one of the things that Buffalo said later that they really liked was that, you know, this, this animal's ability to educate lives on, you know, yes, that, it, that, that it lives on indefinitely now in our collections. And we've actually gotten a lot of, uh, of specimens over the years from Buffalo and from other zoos. Mm -hmm. And that is the one thing that we can promise is this animal will continue to teach you know, indefinitely, because it's in our collections now. And every student that comes through is going to have to learn those little characters. You know, learn, they're not learning the carburetor. They're learning, you know, the humorous, whatever. Right, but they right. got to learn those characters, and that's where it's going to happen. That's incredible. Uh, ambassador animals after death. I love it. Um, so I, I like to open up the floor at the end of the podcast. Is there anything that you want to discuss, talk about, plug, um, conservation organizations you like? Just anything that you want to throw out there quick. I mean, I, I usually do like to pitch that, you know, I mean, we do have a, you know, active graduate program if people are out there interested in paleontology. Um, you know, we do have an active program here at ETSU. Uh, we're always accepting students. We don't really advertise it very much because, you know, we, we get enough students word of mouth. Right. Um, because it's very unusual to have such an active paleontology program uh, anywhere these days, let alone, at, you know, in the hills of East Tennessee. Um, but because of our fossil locality and because we have a big museum right on site, you know, we really, we really have the ideal situation to do it. And so we continue to, to you know, to produce uh, paleontologists. But at the same time, for people that just come out and visit the great fossil site, you know, the museum, I always like to say, you know, you don't have to become a paleontologist. Just come out or be a paleontologist. 
just come out and see that science can be fun. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's it not is it's not all beakers and and pens and you know computers and no oh, yeah. And it, sometimes it's we're out sometimes we're out digging in the dirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this has been incredible, and thank you for the tour and just for all of all of this. Um, and uh, the last thing that I want to put in here, just to tie it back to pandas one more time, is many of you may have noticed as you've been driving that um, you will see a U-Haul truck that says Tennessee and has a red panda on it, which seems really weird since this is not Nepal. And now you know why. It's actually a reference to this area and to the, um, the panda fossils that were found here. And uh, if you look at it, you can see the skeleton of the female, as well mm -hmm. as a picture of uh, one of the Knoxville pandas mm -hmm. that was taken by my guest and then turned into the drawing. Mm -hmm. So um, the next time that you see the the red panda U-Haul, think of this interview and, and understand now why there is a red panda U-Haul for Tennessee. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing sure. this. Appreciate it. I seriously cannot tell you how awesome it was to spend the day at the museum with Dr. Wallace. It was so much fun. One of my favorite moments, though, came when I saw the wall hanging with the U-Haul artwork and realized that I now understood why a red panda is the art U-Haul chose to use for the state of Tennessee. I have wondered that every time I see one on the road or when posing for a picture in front of one in a parking lot. Um, y'all pose for pictures with the red panda U-Haul too, right? It's not just me? No? Dang. Well, anyway, make sure you check out the Insta today to see my pics of the skeletons at the Gray Fossil Site, and check it out online at gfs.handson.org to see the awesome work they are doing. They can also be found at Gray Fossil Site on all major social media platforms. Definitely check out their Facebook post from September 19th, which was International Red Panda Day, where they discuss the pandas I mentioned in this episode even further. Go end credits, go. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan Burke and John Rossi. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app. Please take the time to leave a review as it helps other people find our podcast. You can find Rossafari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Rossafari, on the web at Rossafari.com, or email me directly at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo. <laughs>